This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, it's one of Shakespeare's least known plays. It's time for Timon of Athens. my friends, I have one word to say to you. Look you, my good lord, I must entreat you, honor me so much as to advance this jewel, accept and wear it, kind my lord. I am so far already in your gifts. Oh, are we all? Happier is he that has no friend to feed, than such that do e'en enemies exceed. To kill, I grant, is sin's extremest gust, but in defense, by mercy, it is most just. What is here? Gold? <laughs> Yellow, glittering, precious gold. I am misanthropos and hate mankind. Here lies a wretched course of wretched soul bereft. Seek not my name. A plague consume your wicked caitiffs left. Alright, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Okay, I've set it. Just remember, a watch iPhone never boils. All is rotten in the state of Athens, but you wouldn't know it by talking to Timon, a wealthy philanthropist and patron of the arts. His friends love him, mostly because he gives them money, and if he has an enemy, it's Epimanus the Cynic, who doesn't even appreciate the party Timon throws for all of his friends. But you can't buy your friends without going broke, and that's exactly what happens to Timon, who sends out his servant Flavius to beg for money from his fellow Athenians. Spoiler alert, they aren't interested in helping. Timon avenges himself by hosting a party for their fair-weather friends and humiliating them. Cursing Athens, he goes into the wilderness, meanwhile, his friend Alcibiades has been exiled after protesting the treatment of one of his officers by the Senate. Now Lady Arrain on Athens, he encounters Timon, who has discovered gold buried in the earth. Timon gives him the gold to pay for the troops that will dismantle Athens, and then refuses to return to society, choosing instead to die in the wilderness. Alcibiades seizes Athens and reads out an epitaph which Timon has written for himself. It goes like this: Here lie I, Timon, who alive all living men did hate. Any discussion of Timon of Athens has to come with a pair of caveats. First, it was most likely written with someone else, and second, the earliest known production happened more than 50 years after Shakespeare died. Both facts are equally important when considering what is a problematic play that wants to be either a tragedy or a satire, and ends up being neither. The script has several inconsistencies, which many a scholar has tried to excuse. The joy of considering the play a collaboration is that we can blame all the bad parts on the other guy. Unfortunately, we can't really seem to agree on who the other guy was, although the dominant theory is that it was Thomas Middleton, one of Shakespeare's contemporaries. I won't dip into the debate here. The authorship of the play is probably a question for academics. As long as the play is considered to be part of Shakespeare's canon, the rest of us can do nothing but reckon with the script that we have. Most productions perform the play with edits, which only brings more cooks into the kitchen, so that if you ever do happen to see Timon of Athens, be aware that you're probably seeing something which Shakespeare and Milton cobbled together, and which has since been adapted by lesser mortals. The premise of Timon of Athens is solid enough, and contains the germ of an idea that continues to have appeal. Timon is very rich, and spends money without thought, which makes him very popular in Greece. Once he loses his money, he discovers that his so-called friends aren't really friends at all. Giving up his wealth, he goes into the wilderness and lives on water and roots. 
It's a deeply cynical play, and perfectly in keeping with the darker themes that make up the last third of Shakespeare's work. Whatever the play's theatrical merits, thematically, Timon of Athens is in perfect harmony with the pessimistic view of humanity Shakespeare showed in King Lear and Measure for Measure. One can almost see in Timon an echo of the first scene of King Lear, with Timon's false friends echoing the empty affections of Gonrail and Reagan. It's unclear whether Shakespeare and his collaborator intended for Timon to be a wealthy hedonist who falls from grace, or an innocent in a land of brutes. Each of these interpretations works with the text that we have, and yet each creates a vastly different play. If Timon is a hedonist, then he begins the play as a man interested only in power and prestige. His patronage of the arts is merely a tactic to ensure his place at the top of the social pyramid. He is Twelfth Night's Sir Toby Belch, if Sir Toby had ever found himself a great deal of money. In other words, he's a lover of wine and song, and has no sincere concern for the world around him. That you would once use our hearts, whereby we might express some part of our zeals, we shall think ourselves forever perfect. <laughs> doubt, my good friends, but the gods themselves have provided that I shall have much help from you. Uh, How had you been my friends else? Why have you that charitable title from thousands? Did not you chiefly belong to my heart? I have told more of you to myself than you can with modesty speak in your own behalf, and thus far I confirm you. <laughs> oh, you gods, think I. What need we have any friends if we should ne'er have need of them? They were the most needless creatures living. Should we ne'er have use for them? And would most resemble sweet instruments hung up in cases that keeps their sounds to themselves. <laughs> Why, I have often wished myself Poorer, but I might come nearer to you. Now, we are born to do benefits, and what better or properer can we call our own than the riches of our friends? Now, in this interpretation, Timon deserves his fate, and the play becomes a cautionary tale, with the play's second half serving as Timon's attempt at redemption. He discovers gold and uses it to pay for Alcibiades' invasion of Athens. In doing so, he uses money, the thing that destroyed him, to destroy the corrupt society of Athens and erect what will hopefully be a new and better world. Naturally, in keeping with this tragic mode, Timon doesn't live long enough to see the brave new world that he helps to create. How could he? Timon has no more place in it than all of those corrupt senators. He was part of the problem. But at the other end of the spectrum, we could interpret the play to have a Timon who is entirely sincere, the good man who also happens to be wealthy and is subsequently condemned for his goodness. He still has no interest in feasting or being a patron of the arts, but his purpose here is not to gain prestige, but rather to please the people who he thinks are his friends. This is the version adopted by Jonathan Price in the BBC televised version, perhaps the only complete version of the play that has ever been filmed, and of which I'll have more to say on later. Here, Price is seen as being quiet and spartan, somewhat bewildered by the wild society around him. But nonetheless, he is convinced that all those men who come to his home truly are his comrades in arms. There's more bite then when Timon realizes the truth. His initial innocence makes this a play about a man who is awakened to the corruption of the world in which he lives. 
This second interpretation is, in my mind, the more dramatic of the two. In the Timon as Hedonist interpretation, the main character isn't someone we like, and the play is nothing but a fable about a city of elitists who all get their just desserts. When Timon is a good man, however, he becomes our hero, a person we can relate to. How many among us has not believed one thing about the world, only to realize another? Now, this version also maintains Shakespeare's streak of cynicism, as it suggests that decency and wealth can never be found in the same place for very long. Here, too, we see another cautionary tale, albeit one of the dangers of being rich. In this interpretation, the wealthy elite are the villains, while Timon is the good man who they abuse. Collaboration or not, the play does feature at least one of Shakespeare's usual suspects, Apamantus, who is the dose of cynicism Shakespeare had been injecting into his plays as far back as the bastard Falconbridge in King John. Appomattis isn't anywhere as memorable as Falconbridge, or for that matter the famed John Falstaff. He has more in common with the melancholy Jaquies from As You Like It, the swaggering Pompey bum in Measure for Measure, and the braggart Parolis in All's Well That Ends Well. For the Shakespeare fan, Appomattis is par for the course, for he's the only one who will speak the truths which others leave unsaid. Good morrow to thee, gentle Appomantus. Till I be gentle, stay thou for thy good morrow. When thou art Timon's dog and these knaves honest. Why dost thou call them knaves? Thou knowest them not. Are they not Athenians? Yes. Then I repent not. You know me, Appomantus. Thou knowest I do. I call thee by thy name. Thou art proud, Appomantus. Of nothing so much as that I am not like Timon. Dramatically, Appomattis is far less interesting than his precursors. Falstaff is so fascinating because he is so much invested in Prince Hal, Falconbridge is loyal to a fault to King John, and even Jaques suffers because he was exiled along with the poor Duke. But what is Timon to Appomattis? What is Appomattis to Timon? They are not relations, and they are not friends. And so there is little at stake when we see Appomattis attack Timon for his generosity at Timon's great feast. What are coils here? Serving of becks and jutting out of bums. I doubt whether their legs be worth the sums that are given for them. Friendships full of dregs. Methinks false hearts should never have sound legs. Thus honest fools lay out their wealth on curtsies. No, Appomattis, if thou wert not sullen, I would be good to thee. No, I'll nothing. For if I should be bribed too, there would be none left to rail upon thee, and then thou wouldst sin the faster. No. <laughs> thou givest so long, Timon. I fear me thou wilt give away thyself in paper shortly. What needs these feasts, pomps, and vain glories? Then you begin to rail on society. Once I'm sworn not to give regard to you. Farewell, and come with better music. Far more interesting is Alcibiades, who is Timon's friend and who anticipates Coriolanus, another man of the ancient world who will be exiled and return with an army to wreak vengeance on his former friends. Thematically, Timon of Athens and Coriolanus have much in common, as both use the ancient world as an allegory for contemporary society. Timon, Alcibiades, and Coriolanus are all men who find favor so long as they are useful to the powers that be only to be cast aside when that use has disappeared. 
But Coriolanus is far more complex than Alcibiades, who comes across merely as a sketch on the page, and who is presented as the moral center of Athens. In one of the play's better scenes, he stands before the Senate and argues that leniency should be given to crimes of passion. You cannot make gross sins look clear. To revenge is no valor, but to bear. My lords, then under favor, pardon me if I speak like a captain. Why do fond men expose themselves to battle and not endure all threats, sleep upon and let the foes quietly cut their throats without repugnancy? If there be such valor in the bearing, what make we abroad? Why then, women are more valiant that stay at home if bearing carry it. And the ass, more captain than the lion, the felon loaden with irons, wiser than the judge if wisdom be in suffering. Oh, my lords, as you are great, be pitifully good. Who cannot condemn rashness in cold blood? To kill, I grant, is sin's extremest gust, but in defense, by mercy, tis most just. To be in anger is impiety, but who is man that is not angry? The Senate won't listen, and still he persists, for which he is promptly exiled from Athens. Again, he anticipates Coriolanus in his vow for revenge. Here is Alcibiades. Now the gods keep you old enough that you may live only in bone, that none may look on you. I'm worse than mad. I have kept back their foes while they have told their money and let out their coin upon large interest. I myself, rich only in large hurts. All those for this? Is this the balsam that the usuring senate pours into captain's wounds? Banishment? It comes not ill. I hate not to be banished. It is a cause worthy my spleen and fury that I may strike at Athens. I'll cheer up my discontented troops and lay for hearts. Tis honour with most lands to be at odds. Soldiers should brook as little wrongs as gods. And now here's Coriolanus after he is banished from ancient Rome. But he is banished as enemy to the people and his country. It shall be so. It shall be so. reek of the rotten fens, whose loves I prize as the dead carcasses of unburied men that do corrupt my air. I banish you, and here remain with your uncertainty. Let every feeble rumour shake your hearts. Your enemies, with nodding of their plumes, fan you into despair. Have the power still to banish your defenders, till at length your ignorance, which finds not till it feels, making but reservation of yourselves, still your own foes, deliver you as most abated captives to some nation that won you without blows. Despising for you, the city, thus I turn my back. Coriolanus has the better speech. Indeed, as shall be seen, he has the better play, but the tenor of both is the same, as is the general arc of the character. Given that Coriolanus was written at approximately the same time, remember that's hard to know exactly when any of these plays were written, let alone performed, it's logical to surmise that one play fed into the other. 
Despite being the play's central characters, Alcibiades and Timon have few scenes together, which is unfortunate. The play may have been more successful had Shakespeare and or Middleton focused the play on their relationship, much as Julius Caesar centers around Brutus and Cassius. In any case, the Act 4 scene between Alcibiades and Timon is their best, if the most curious. Both have been exiled, and Alcibiades, in the company of two prostitutes, discovers Timon in an impoverished state. What art thou there? Speak. A beast as thou art. The canker gnaw thy heart for showing me again the eyes of man. What is thy name? Is man so hateful to thee that art thyself a man? I am misanthropos and hate mankind. For thy part, I do wish thou wert a dog, that I might love thee something. I know thee well, but in thy fortunes am unlearned and strange. I know thee too, and more than that I know thee, I not desire to know. Follow thy drum, with man's blood paint the ground, gules. Gules, <laughs> religious canons, civil laws are cruel, then what should war be? Both in exile, Alcibiades and Timon have reacted in opposite ways. One embraces exile while the other fights it. Alcibiades wants to sack Athens just so he can rebuild it, but Timon implores the two prostitutes to help complete society's ruin. Give us some gold, good Timon. Hast thou more? Enough to make a whore forswear her trade, and to make whores aboard. Hold up, <laughs> you sluts, your aprons mountained. You are not overbore, although I know you'll swear, terribly swear, into strong shudders and to heavenly agues, the immortal gods that hear you. Spare your oaths. I'll trust to your conditions. Be whores still, and he whose pine breath seeks to convert you, be strong in horror. Allure him, burn him up, let your close fire predominate his smoke, and be no turncoats. Yet may your pain six months be quite contrary, and thatch your poor thin roofs with burdens of the dead, some that were hanged, no matter, wear them, betray with them, whore, still, paint, till a horse may mire upon your face a pox of wrinkles. <laughs> to Timon, the world is not worth fighting for, but Alcibiades still has some sense of hope. It's this difference in opinion which continues to make Timon of Athens a timely play, who among us has not watched the news and wondered if it wouldn't be better if we all just gave up and lived in caves. A word must be saved for Flavius, that loyal servant of Timon, who along with Alcibiades represents the play's only example of human decency. Like Alcibiades, his presence in the play reminds us that not everyone is as terrible as Timon and Apamantus would have us believe. In showing Timon his loyalty right before Timon's death, he gives Timon what Alcibiades could not, and one could interpret the ending as one in which Timon regains some hope for the world during his final breaths. Unfortunately, this would not gel with the epitaph Timon writes for himself, and which Alcibiades reads in the last moment of the play. Here lies a wretched course, of wretched soul bereft. Seek not my name. A plague consume you wicked caitiffs left. Here lie I, Timon, who alive all living men did hate. Pass by and curse thy fill, but pass and stay not here thy gate. Poor Timon. 
Even Flavius's loyalty could not truly convince him that the world is a worthy place to be. His pessimistic death makes the play every bit as nihilistic as King Lear, though, of course, that play has more lyricism and a grandly tragic cast. Timon of Athens' themes have certainly stayed relevant, and the potential for satire in many of the scenes often prove too irresistible in our cynical age. However, I remain unconvinced that the right production could salvage Timon of Athens, which strikes me as a script that, while unique, will never quite be ready for prime time. However, I remain hopeful that someday, somewhere, I'll find myself in a performance which will change my mind. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. So, Wikipedia tells me there was a Croatian-filmed version of Timon made in 1973, but I've never seen it, so let's just assume it's brilliant and move on to discuss the world's only other film production of this often-forgotten play. Made in 1981 by the BBC and directed by Jonathan Miller, this made-for-television movie is distinct for featuring a very young Jonathan Price and for its interpretation of the title character. As I said earlier, Price plays Timon as being earnest and sincere, so that he is truly broken when the world turns away from him. The entire movie is played as tragedy, with none of the potential for satire explored, a valid interpretation that nonetheless can make even the play's first half a bit of a slog. However, Price is a dynamite actor, then as now, which should come as a surprise to no one, and he's engaging enough to make the movie worth a watch for the Shakespeare devotee. Those craving other versions of Timon would probably want to check out the Archangel recording, which gives an entirely different interpretation. Also, as I'm recording this, Canada Stratford Festival is performing a modern-day version of the play, which will most likely be recorded, so by the time you listen to this, there may be another version of Timon for you to explore. Regardless of how you feel about modernizing Shakespeare, Timon of Athens probably deserves a pass. A modern-day version almost feels like a necessity, given this play's themes. Well, that's it for Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, Shakespeare's shortest tragedy, whose names I can't say because the play is most likely cursed. It's time for what I'll call the Scottish play. Thanks so much for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. If you want to check out more episodes or find out more about what I do with my time, please visit www.joelfishbane.net. And hey, while you're there, why not find out how you can get your hands on a copy of my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them. It's available from St. Martin's Press. That's it for Shakespeare on Bard. 29 plays down, 9 to go. Will Shakespeare has a play. Let's go and cough through it.